So, Mark, we, we got a lot to talk about this morning. First, we're, we're going we're gonna to do, like, Creed, Deadpool, listener mail. What was the other thing we were, we, we were talking about? Uh, oh, what we, what we were talking about? Yes. I don't know. The fact that we're recording this at 7 in the morning and I'm drinking a Diet Snapple. <laughs> this podcast not brought to you by Snapple, but I'm just uh, saying I'm drinking a Diet Snapple. Uh, so, real quickly. No, uh, no, no. no. I, I had said, I had yeah. admitted to Wade, which I guess I will now admit to you, that... You know, as film critics, we can't see every single they didn't, damn movie they, ever in the world. They didn't send us screeners for Creed. Okay. So I did not see Creed, although yeah. I was really looking forward to it. Yeah. In fact, I didn't. I wasn't even reading about it. Yeah. Because I didn't want anything spoiled. Yeah. And then finally, because I had nothing, I had, I had no sweetheart on Valentine's Day, because I'm a single loser. I saw my family for brunch, mm-hmm. walking back home, yeah. and I saw that Creed was playing at the local second run theater. So I'm going in. I am doing something I have not done. In, uh, I've done maybe five times in the last 20 years, which is pay for a movie. There you go. So I went to see Creed. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, Creed, it was a miracle. It's great. It's, good it's really good. Not only, is it, not only is it a good movie on its own, but it somehow manages to reclaim the Rocky Balboa character from like the dustbin of clown college circus BS <laughs> and make him into an actual nostalgic guy who's who's fought his battles and has nothing left to prove and is going to train this kid. And you made an interesting point, though. You were saying that it does... You, you made the J.J. analogy. Well, because I, I had said that Creed does a little bit what, um, what Star Wars The Force Awakens does, which is it... It hews to the formula that the old folks are, are, are already are well familiar with. It hews to, to the general plot line of the previous Rocky mm-hmm. films that the old films that the old people can relate to. Yet it makes them feel very fresh. The difference being that nobody at the corporate level was sitting around saying, "How can we, how can we reboot the Rocky franchise?" It was Coogler's idea. It originated with him. Rebooting Star Wars did not originate with J.J. It originated with a bunch of bean counters who were literally just going orgasmically out of their minds over the thought that, you mean, we could George Lucas is really going to hand us billions of dollars of instant merchandising revenue that will, like, kick the stock price up, like, 40% and then our golden parachute? Like, I can retire next year and, you know, build my mansion in the Bahamas? Like, literally, that's, that's what motivated Star Wars. Uh, that's true, and yeah. I have to say that I was. That's not what motivated Kugler, and that's not what motivated Creed. I, they, Kugler, is the, Kugler is the real thing. He's got he great, he's got he's got great instincts. The only thing I'll say is, is that whatever movie he does next, he had better hire somebody else to do the score because the score was subpar. Yeah, and I have to say that the climactic fight. I don't know that Kugler can necessarily. You know, look, John Avelson, Oscar-winning director. He had yeah. Bill Conti. He's he he built that yeah. last fight with Apollo Creed to be like this epic mano yeah. a mano that would yeah. live for the ages. Yeah. Cooler, he's not quite there yet. He can't build something that amazing. Well, he's, but I mean, he's still so talented. That kid, yeah. he's—I just—I'm very impressed by him. He's, he's great. great, and he's so great. Michael B. Jordan's great too. No, absolutely. And you know what? I would give Stallone an Oscar nomination. I would. Yeah, I would. You know what? I—he—he—he—he he, he, he well, he's, he's going to win. You—you you know that, right? Yeah, uh, he's going to win. You know what? I—I I would buy it. Okay, I would buy it if. Should I give us do a spoiler? No. Okay. No, don't do this because um, we're because we're gonna get it in in a couple of weeks. Okay. It's on its way. Um, I, would I give it to him? I, I guess he might just for nostalgia's sake. But yeah. I'm telling you, he earns it. Does Coogler and Michael B. Jordan do they earn it? I have to say that I the, I'm surprised Creed did not get we, we, with ten best picture nominations. I'm surprised Creed did not get in. Um, now Coogler, Coogler and Jordan but could remember, have made it in. Could have made it in under the. We want because sometimes the Academy will nominate somebody just to let them know that they're part of the group. Now we like yeah. you, and Coogler definitely could have made it in if, under that if they were just tabulating votes, doing like what we do. If they were giving credence to set credence, <laughs> credence yeah, giggles uh, to you know second and third place votes and overall popularity, and if they were tabulating that in a way that made sense, Creed would have been in there, Carol would have been in there, Compton would have been in there. But they didn't do that. They 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 rigged the system be, to be the way the producers do it, where you rank it from you know one to ten, and then you get nominated if you get at least like two hundred and ninety or something first place votes. But you have to get a certain number of first place votes. 
that was the way. Well, that Creed they, would never get first. Well, exactly. I would not give Creed first place. It's, votes. it's, it's first, a terrific film. I was, but they're this, remiss in not seeing it. This is the system that they're now going to have to change because those films did not get nominated because, and not because the Academy is racist or anything, but because they thought that that's they didn't see the the. They didn't see the side effects of, of doing it that way. They didn't realize what films would be left out, the opportunity cost of doing it that way. All they saw was, oh, my gosh, this might actually get a Transformers film nominated for Best Picture, and then all the kids will tune in and the advertisers will be thrilled and we'll have an operating budget for the year. That's the way they were thinking. They didn't think, oh, my gosh, it's going to prevent films like, like uh, Straight Outta Compton from getting nominated, and then people are going to call us racist. They never think about those things. They always think about the other things. You know, so also, anyway. also, I did something after I saw Creed. I did something that I have not done in uh, since I was probably sixteen, which is I. I then, don't want to know about this. This is dirty. No, actually, it's not. Okay. I then snuck into another film. Oh well, there you go. Because I, I, okay, here, okay, here, I'll, I'll tell this really quickly. I, I, I'd, I'd never seen Hunger Games: Mockingjay Part Two. Yeah. Never seen it. Yeah. Right. Then again, I had never seen Hunger Games: Mockingjay Part One. But it's playing in the next theater. I'm like, yeah. yeah, I'll just sneak in. So I sneak in, and before I sneak in, I check my mail on my phone. And I noticed that I get an email from Google saying somebody has has uh, uh, stolen your password off of Google. Mm. So I got a little nervous. So I'm sitting there in Mockingjay Part 2, and the film uh, uh, seems fine. I like the fact that it's, it's, did you see it? No, not yet. Uh, it definitely feels padded out. Obviously, uh-huh. it's two, it's one book made into two. I did like the fact that it is at its, at its essence a platoon film. Yeah, it's just a, like you know, a, a, a dozen characters walking around the city trying to find the sure. president. That's all it is. It, it's a platoon, which is kind of nice. Yeah, actually, it's a platoon film. Now there's all sorts of, of video game type gadgets that they use to kill people. All I'm thinking about is the fact that my Google uh, uh, account has been hacked, and I have all sorts of financial information in there. And uh, actually, I don't. But let's say I did, yeah. and I'm like, you know what? I, I, about 20 minutes before the end of the film, I decided to leave and check my Google mm-hmm. account to make sure that I was okay. Yeah. I was okay, and then to see what happened at the end of the film, I went to the movie's wiki page, Wikipedia page, mm-hmm. and I read the end of the, what happens at the end. There you go. That was my, that was my Valentine's Day. Well, very nice. You know, what, so, I did? You, you know what I did? Well, you have a, you have a wife and a daughter, yes. so that's what you well, do. We, we had a play date with another little girl and her parents. Whose dad actually is a cinematographer and director, and uh, we talked about the stuff he's been doing. Did a, he did a Nickelodeon miniseries for kids recently, which sounds wonderful. Uh, but anyway, the uh, so you know the little girls did their parallel play because at their age they don't really play together; they just sort of play next to each other. But anyway, uh, and then I, uh, me being the genius that I am, I've been trying to figure out for the longest time how to take my daughter's magnetiles. You know what magnetiles are? They're you know little... what? I saw something on. Did you yeah. post something on Facebook? I did. I did. I posted a picture of it. So magnetiles are these little plastic tiles that have magnets on the edges, so you can stick them together and build things. And some of them are square and rectangular and triangular, right? So you have uh, uh, the you have the triangles, the little you know regular equal sided triangle deals. And I've been trying to basically make a twenty sided die. You know, from like Dungeons and Dragons and all that. You got the twenty sided die, right? Which is really called an icosahedron. And I've been trying to figure out how to make one because the t- you know the magnets are not strong enough. It'll it'll collapse on itself. And I figured out how to take forty of them and recreate an infrastructure and an exoskeleton so that I could. Okay, never mind. Anyway, I made an icosahedron with magnetiles. Isn't that exciting? It is not. It's not easy. It's really not easy. And it's not interesting. BAFTAs. Uh, real quickly before we get into the DVDs and Blu-rays, BAFTAs. Uh, the, the, I have this ongoing argument with a friend of mine who's a BAFTA member. He's a, he's a songwriter. And uh, he's like, you're so wrong. Spotlight is never going to win Best Picture. It's a TV movie. They're never going to give Best Picture to Spotlight. It's The Revenant. I, and, I, and I told him, I said, look, seriously, I, if you're wrong, I'll buy you lunch or whatever. But it's not going to be The Revenant. It's not nominated for screenplay. It has only one acting nomination. It did not get a, a SAG Award uh, nomination for uh, ensemble cast, which no film has won Best Picture in 20 years that was not at least nominated for a SAG Ensemble Award. The only ones that are are The Big Short and Spotlight. Spotlight won the SAG. Big Short won the Producers Guild. Those are the only two films in the running for Best Picture as far as I'm concerned, and they're not going to give it to Will Ferrell's partner 
for his first decent film, they're going to be like, eh, it's a fluke. Show us something else. Give us something else. Show us what else you got. Spotlight. Tom McCarthy. Actors love him. SAG loved it. Come on. Give it up. Spotlight's going to win Best Picture. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's not like a runaway. It, it is, as you described, yeah. where the little tiny pieces of evidence, it's not like Titanic's going to win. Mm. The little tiny pieces of evidence point to something irrefutable, which is that Spotlight will win. And people love Tom McCarthy. They do. He's been, he's been on the bubble for so many years. That's I mean, true. this is like, oh, if you're not going to do it now. That's true. Please. Uh, okay. All right. Very good. And, are, 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 are we done talking about things yes. other than DVDs yes, we are. and Blu-rays? Just, just well, actually, uh, 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 Deadpool, one hundred and fifty million dollars. One hundred thirty-five million dollars. Yep. R-rated superhero film. Ryan Reynolds. I has love a, it. Ryan Reynolds has officially made Green Lantern go away. What's <laughs> it's gone? It's off his back. What's the monk, the monkey's back in the cage. But what does it say about Ryan Reynolds that he finally breaks out in a film where you see ha- where where for half the film you don't even see his face? Yeah. Well. But I like the fact that, uh, you know, uh, look, for Fox, Fox has had their issues with s- superhero films. You know, I think the X-Men films are good. I- I'm actually... I, I do, too. I think they're good. But generally speaking, they've had their issues. Now here's an unqualified... By the way, this also shows you... I know you're about to read some mail, right? Yeah. This also shows you how the whole Force Awakens, highest grossing uh, opening weekend in history, it'll be blown away by something. Deadpool made $135 million. Okay, uh, Deadpool, a yeah. C-level superhero movie made... $135 million. I'm just saying that someday there'll be some Fast and Furious 26 that will beat Star Wars The Force Awakened because tickets will be $65 a piece, $85 in IMAX, and then it'll just break Star Wars' record. So, yep. you know, I, I, these numbers are almost meaningless at this point. It's tickets sold, Wade. Tickets sold. I know. So uh, Alex Weiss wrote us, and this is, this is going back actually into December because we've had this stacking up for a little while, and gods at digigods.com, by the way, for Vox Boxes, Lister Mail, and any lingering opening uh, suggestions we're going to record with Corey after the Oscars are done. We're going to knock out the, uh, the new openings. Do, does Corey know this? Uh, not yet, but he will. <laughs> he will soon enough. Okay. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, okay. Corey's, a, Corey's a mensch. I'll let him know. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll buy him a, a turkey or something. So uh, Alex Weiss says, I want to share some thoughts on the Terminator franchise. I'm interested in hearing your response. I did see most of the summer releases. Big disappointment was Terminator Genesis. So I've already complained on the internet that showing the future war with the machines would be the one new, fresh, uh, and overkill, I think, best thing. Well, it would be uh, one new, fresh way, and overall, I think, the best new thing is to move the series forward since prior to Salvation, only glimpses were shown of it. Uh, It wasn't as bad as I expected, uh, my biggest gripe is the movie is just twists, remakes, reboots, uh, the whole continuity series timeline thing ultimately makes all of those things more of a big headache. I think everyone uh, else thinks the first two are the best. Um, so uh, the question is, um, you know, what, uh, what lies in the future for the Terminator franchise? Have they completely blown it with this uh, with this? Well, mis- they, no, they have. new direction. Well, you realize that the next Terminator sequel was on the studio schedule, then they pulled they it off pulled the schedule. It. Yeah. So that's it. Is it dead? Is David uh, Ellison just is, – is he just clean out of – because he bought the whole Terminator franchise. I mean <laughs> – you know. He will find a way to make it into a TV series again, to sell it to Amazon. Games. Games. Yeah. I mean, I think that he'll wind up eking a profit out think, of that. I don't think there's any juice left in that franchise. I really don't. Not even as a game. No, I don't. I really do. I mean, maybe as games, but I don't think there are any more Terminator. Ah. There are no more Terminator movies to be had. Oh, definitely the only, not. The, the, the only way that you, you get any Terminate, uh, any new Terminator movies going is if you if you cut yourself loose from the whole time travel paradox rewriting the past thing. If you get out of the whole time travel thing and you just say, you know what, they, that was the original idea. They did it to death, but we're done. We're out of that. Uh, and then uh, a lot of people emailed us because we were under the impression some weeks ago that Gordon Willis was still alive. We're like, oh, no, Gordon Willis died like in 2014. We lost Gordon Willis too. So all you know, Vilmos Zygmunt, they're all gone now. No, they're still uh, Storaro. That's true. But he's, he's Caleb Deschanel. Caleb, but he's kind of the second generation. He's yeah. not that. That he's not the one of those 60s guys. Too bad. Anyway, and uh, Cheval Dixon says, um, it is truly bizarre that no one cares about Avatar, even though it's the number one movie of all time. How does that happen? Fox has their work cut out for them. It's sad that the last films Cameron will probably make are Avatar sequels, because I'm not sure what he would do next afterwards. Uh, also, fun fact, Star Wars The Force Awakens is the first film to be number one movie of all time for the domestic box office and not nominated for Best Picture since Snow White. 
Good call, Chevelle. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. By the way, don't you find it weird that uh, episode eight just cast Benicio del Toro and Laura Dern? No. Laura Dern. In I a know. Star Wars Laura movie? Dern Look, Donnie Yen is going to be in a Star Wars movie. Yeah, but he but he can kick ass. Yeah. L- Laura Dern, who by the way, who who doesn't love Laura Dern? I'm just saying that it's like a weird. Like she'll play some mom or something. Yeah, that's all she does. Mother man. to the yeah some space yeah. alien. Yeah. Job of the Hutt's mom. Think when you think back on the people who've been in Star Wars. For, Peter Cushing was in Star Wars. But that you know what Peter Cushing <laughs> I mean, Peter Cushing was glad to have that job. He was yes, like, he was. But still, <laughs> I was like Peter Cushing was in Star Wars. It's really a strange thing. Uh, and uh, let's see. And then uh, uh, yeah, Brian Sagan um, asks regarding uh, Blade Runner, which version is the one to watch? My 15-year-old son has expressed an interest. I want to do right by him. I could ask the internet, but the internet is not you guys. Thanks much. Director's Bird, cut. Blade, Blade Runner. Director's cut, of course. The, 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 the actual director's cut, not the one that they called the director's cut originally. Yeah, the director's cut, not the narration. I mean, the others, it's, they're all on the same set, but you want to watch the actual most recent Ridley Scott director's cut. Which, That's by the way, we, we very rarely say. Yeah. Normally, normally when a director goes back, to create their director's cut, it's because they've got a they've got a piece of the of, of the Blu-ray sales. It's because whatever. But this one really is Ridley Scott knocking out of the park in the version that he wished he could have released back then. Absolutely. And then uh, lastly, you know, uh, Mark, we reach far and wide on this uh, on this planet, and we got a lovely email from Deji in Nigeria. Says I'm a big fan of the podcast. Wade, why do you hate Zack Snyder so much? You've called him a hack a few times. Is it personal? Um, I think it's a bit hyperbole to call him a hack when Uwe Boll is still working. Well, he's not really working. Uwe Boll is officially retired now, right? Hasn't he written everything off? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, he's made every bad film he can possibly make. I, I, Frank, bottom line, I, I, the reason I hate Zack Snyder is he's just, it's just his films are hacky. They are. They're just, they okay, don't. What did you think of the, of the latest, uh, what's it called? The, the trailer? trailer yeah. the, the latest Batman Superman yeah, which, trailer? Which, by the way, was so dark and murky, I could barely see anything. You know, I, I, I'm going to give him some credit, actually. The, the way that ba- they, they CGI'd up Batman's fighting style so that it doesn't look like he's carrying 85 pounds of, you know, like, like he's not like a Marine with a pack with a suit. Right. Because even the Nolan films, he's not moving well. You know, he just isn't. It's like you, you want something that looks like what you imagine the comic books to be, where he's wearing the suit because it enables him to be agile, not because he's like walking in with a suit of armor on. You know, and in this one, he has a suit of armor, but uh, it looks more agile. So I'll give him some credit. The, it looks like there are some good action things, but I still know the movie's going to suck. Um, anyway, he says, uh, Do you think it's a good idea for studios to keep sticking their noses in the process of movie making, taking away a director's power? Um, I asked this question mainly because of what Fox did to Josh Trank. As we know, Fantastic Four we saw was not Trank's movie. Um, I'm going to say no, that studios really do meddle too much, but it's their money, and they get to meddle studios as much as they Studios have always meddled. They've always I meddled. Mean, when, when in the history of films have studios not meddled? The, the, yeah, I mean, there are certain directors from the golden age who had enough power to sort of you know say, I'm going to do what I want to do. William Wyler and Fred Zinneman and Billy Wilder all at a certain point just did what they wanted, Hitchcock. Um, but it, it, you know, today there's just too much. There's too much stockholder value on the line, and that's why they hire people like Josh Trank because they can, they know they can push them around, and uh, they'll, they'll they're so thankful for the job that they'll shut up and they'll and they'll do what they're told. You know, because but look they, at someone like uh, look at someone like you know David Selznick. Yeah, I mean Selznick. That guy uh, was a legendary. That guy he, he pushed everybody it. around <laughs> except Hitchcock. Except Hitchcock. P- except Hitchcock because Hitchcock you know pushed back. But uh, but no, but like people, they've you know. Uh, Executives have been have been look, Pete. Look, uh, film studios. As much as we love to think of the golden age as the golden age, yeah. every film studio has wanted their films to make money. No, yeah. no film studio has has decided to get into the business to lose money. True. Now you know back then they were making films that you know were great, and then it was up to the public to either accept them or not. Whereas now studios make films that they that are already pre digested and pre liked by the public. And I also think Josh Trank was was really out of his out of his element. I think he was just not he was not the guy to do that. He was not. He was just anyway. not up to that task. As opposed to someone like Colin Trevorrow, who it seems like at least he can put together a big. Big All right, so uh, Spectre uh, out this week, uh, the new James Bond film. The which I, I, you know, uh, here's my bottom line on Spectre: totally, totally acceptable. Uh, not as good as it should have been, not as good as it could have been, but honestly, I, you know, so much better than every Pierce Brosnan film, and certainly better than uh, Quaalude of uh, Shoelace. 
that I can't really complain. It's like so it's a minor step down from the last one. Okay, fair enough. I it's still you know Daniel Craig is great. I'm uh, I'm I, I thought for the most part it totally delivered. Uh, Few it, exceptions. Yeah, you know what? If uh, the other one, what was it called? Uh, the one that I loved was the previous one. I forgot already. Oh, oh uh, yeah. Golden, yeah. not Golden, Gold. the other one, the Golden Steve, Mel. What's it called? <laughs> what the, 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 it's uh, 7 in the morning, folks. Yeah, Give us a break. Exactly. Okay, the previous Bond film. Yes. One that could be the best Bond film ever. Yes. Could be the best Bond oh. film ever. Love that film. So good. So really, if that was a Grand Slam, Spectre will seem by, you know, by default, Spectre's going to seem like a triple. Yeah. You know, so it's fine. It's good. Yeah, it's perfectly it's a, fine. It's, by the way, it's a beautiful Blu-ray. Beautiful Blu-ray. Uh, not a lot of extras on here. The uh, You just get, you know, the, the like, um, uh, you know, video blogs and a few other things that are sort of done for the web. Uh, really not very much. But you do get an, an ultraviolet uh, copy and access to it, which is fine. And it's going to, you know, if you bought the recent uh, comprehensive set, there's a little slot in there. So you can pull the disc out, stick it in, and throw away the keep case. Uh, on the other end of the budget spectrum is Grandma. Grandma was uh, really reinvigorated Lily Tomlin's career. If you guys don't know who Lily Tomlin is, she was a legendary comic in the 60s and uh, very much of a, a feminist comic and had some great uh, – what's what's the signature line? Wade, do it. Lily Tomlin's signature line. Uh, sock it to me. <laughs> and that's the truth. Oh, that one. Okay. Anyway, so Lily Tomlin, very much respected by uh, all the generations of, uh, of filmmakers from yesterday to today, but yet yeah, she's kind of old and a bit retired, and uh, no one really found a place for her until Grandma. And Grandma, directed by Paul Weitz, right? Paul Weitz, come on, yeah. guys. Paul Weitz, written and directed by Paul Weitz. He uh, reclaims her. He's great. It's a beautiful, handcrafted sort of a movie, very generous with uh, Lily Tomlin's performance. Julia Garner's in it also. Marsha Gay Harden, yes. He's about to say something. I was going to say Paul Weitz, who uh, who is the brother of Chris, Chris Weitz, Weitz, who was at our dinner. Who That's I, true. Who I, who I sat with, who was uh, part of the the whole Envy Coates uh, thing. You know what? Every time I go to the dinner, the Lafka dinner, they always sit me at like the lamest table. Because you know what they do at the Oscar. You know you, you know what they do at the at the Oscar luncheon. Hmm. At the, you know the Oscar luncheon. That's where the all the nominees appear at the luncheon, and there's media everywhere, right? And right. the media gets to sit at the table with 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 the with the nominees, but you don't know who you're getting, and they literally they literally uh, oh, really? uh, they pick you out of they pick each media member out of a out of a uh, uh, they give they they give, they give them like a I'm explaining this poorly. The media is told it's a surprise who they're going to be sitting next to. Okay, so it's not a science seat; it's a bowl. And they pick a piece of paper out of the bowl, and then they hand you your table number, and that's who you're sitting with, right? So nobody is assigned anything. And this guy that I work with, he goes to the Oscar luncheon. He steps up. There's the big bowl. They pull his uh, uh, piece of paper out of the bowl, and then the person who's who's you know doing the whole thing looks at the looks at the number that's on the piece of paper that was picked out mm-hmm. of the bowl, and says to this guy I work with, he says, "You'll be very happy where you're sitting this year." So it turns out he was sitting in the same table as Lady Gaga. Oh, nice! But the thing is that you is that the members no of the idea. press who go to the Oscar luncheon they don't know who they'll be sitting with. They're so only if it's, they it's pick, like a big lottery. So if they if they let's say you wind up sitting next to Ali Sheedy because they picked her name out of the bowl, do do you get to say that that's the, that you officially have uh, uh, that that's like bowling alley? Okay, oh, go away now. Uh, we've got some horror films here. Okay, so three of them. I'm going to go through them in reverse order. Crimson Peak, not bad. Uh, perfectly acceptable. A, a essentially a uh, placeholder film for uh, for Guillermo del Toro, um, who you know has has sort of he, he's had all these projects that sort of almost went, but then didn't, which includes The Hobbit, and then what was the big the big uh, the big giant epic thing that he was trying to get them to spend a ridiculous amount of money on? Well, he's he's been was trying to do stand. Um, no, it wasn't the stand. It was something else. Everybody's so, been attached to the stand. Yeah, but he he's been trying to do Pacific Rim too forever. Yeah, but there was another one. There's another giant big like epic thing. Anyway, he hasn't been able to get any of them off the ground, so he'll do a little thing like Crimson Peak. Which is kind of like a, it's essentially a Victorian horror film, and uh, it's fine. It's just, you know, Victorian horror, gothic horror, and uh, it's suspenseful, and it's uh, it's fine. It's perfectly passable. It, it, it's stylish, and, you know, the effects and the suspense are good, and it's got a decent cast, and, and that's it, really. I mean, it, what else is there to this thing? Uh, nothing. I mean, did you see it? 
I did not. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, uh, Mia Wasikowska, who kind of annoys me a little bit because she's just doing these things on, on, on constantly. You know, you know, everybody's got her in a corset lately. Uh, she's really good. Jessica Chastain, it's a nice, unusual turn. Uh, Charlie Hunnam, who I'm not a huge fan of, is, is passable. And Tom Hiddleston is great in everything. And, you know, you just sort of can't go wrong with that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's like if, you know, the, the, the Brontes or... Uh, Jane Austen wrote something that had ghosts. There you go. It's perfectly fine. Um, uh, less fine is Hangman, which is uh, allegedly inspired by true events, which usually means that something happened with people, and this has people, and so it's inspired by events to that degree. It has people in it. Jeremy Sisto and Kate Ashfield are in this. Um, really, uh, it's just it's just a uh, another one of these found footage movies that does a much less impressive job than, um, you know, just about anything else that's, that's been in this genre. It just really, it's, it's treading water. It's going back over the same stuff that's been done a million times before. Um, so I can't, I can't really recommend this, but it is at least better than the Blu-ray that I have in my hands right now, which is Martyrs, which is directed by the Getz brothers, G O E T Z. And Bernie Getz. I love the the, the way they push this. From a producer of The Conjuring and Annabelle, which, you know, that, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. So here, here's the deal about Martyrs. Martyrs is a, um, is a low-budget um, low film that deals with a woman who has – oh, how am I going to do this without giving anything away for the people that might be so unfortunate to see it? Uh, basically, you've, you've got a woman who – you have these two girls, right? And, one, and they grew up in the same foster care home. And uh, one of them had some kind of traumatic thing that she was rescued from, and they form a bond. And then years later, um, the the one finds the other one again and says, "I have, you know, I have found them." And now you you flat basically what she's done is she's murdered the people who she blames for this whole torture thing that happened to her when she was a kid. Well, fair enough, fine. You know, if, if, you, if the idea is that this wonderful suburban couple that looked like they had nice kids and so forth really ran some kind of a torture dungeon, um, fair enough. Then, you, you know, you can give me kind of a, a low-grade torture porn film, and I, and I won't hate it as much as I would otherwise. But instead, it goes into this bizarre pseudo-religious cult um, that is, that just is so completely unhinged. There's just it, it it takes it completely beyond the realm of anything credible. And then when it's ridiculous and it's torture porn, I, it's just it's adding insult to injury. So I cannot recommend this thing in any way whatsoever. Uh, but it got a theatrical release, unlike Hangman. So obviously nobody knows. Wade, you know when um, when Lafka time comes, and uh, you're inundated with uh, DVDs to watch. Usually you're kind of annoyed because you're like, I have to watch this. Yep. I have to watch this. And then every once in a while you'll be like, you'll throw a movie in and you'll be completely absorbed and say, oh, my God, I cannot believe I missed this great film. I know. I, ass kicked. Yeah. It was so good. Wade. 99 Homes. I thought this movie was stirring. It's great. And it was, it was gripping. It's fantastic. And I loved it. I thought I this too. film was just great. I did too. And I'm a huge fan of Michael Shannon, so I'm glad that we gave him our Best Supporting Actor Award. And then uh, he's, of course, now nominated for Best Supporting Actor Oscar. And, and this is like, you know, the director has been on the bubble for a while. Um, and I always mutilate his name. So Raman Barani, right? Is that the best way? Barani, yeah. Barani. Anyway, he's been on the bubble for a while. He's been making, a, you know, a, a handful of really decent uh, indie films never he's sort of been man like, push cart man push cart yeah he's always been sort of like oh the critics love him but not quite enough to uh, you know win any awards or get any nominations man this one i mean michael shannon won our supporting actor nominee uh, award and deservedly i mean he's just and it's an interesting companion film to go with the big uh, short right because the big short is all about you know the machinations of the, the what went on at the wall street level with the housing crisis this is look they even put a big sticker that says winner best actor yep. los angeles film critics association Yay, we're famous. Anyway, the uh, the special features here include a uh, audio commentary by uh, Barani and a couple of deleted scenes. Actually, one deleted scene, which is like whatever. But uh, this is with Andrew Garfield, of course, also in this, and Laura Dern, who we just talked about a second ago. So uh, I very, very highly recommend 99 Homes. It is, it is about the financial crisis, home foreclosures. And uh, people I mean, who take advantage of it, and Mike, you know, it, it's essentially Andrew Garfield and uh, Michael Shannon. This this kind of kind of you know, Andrew Garfield is a family man. They're repossessing his home, and in order to sort of save his home, he goes to work for the guy who repossessed the home, which is Michael Shannon, who's this cutthroat real estate guy. 
and uh, very it's, very Michael Douglas in Wall Street. It's 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 beyond that. It's so much better because he's. Michael Douglas in Wall Street is an easy guy to hate. Michael Shannon here, which, as was pointed out during our uh, during our awards, you, you you love him and you hate him. I mean, he becomes- you know what he makes that he here's the thing he makes that character almost sympathetic. You almost find your your allegiances sort of go okay. I understand him. I get where he's coming from. Yep. But the thing that and again they're both great performances. But I'm just saying that at least Michael Douglas, what Michael Douglas brought to that role was uh, a certain amount of slimy oily charm yes right yep whereas michael shannon again great performance i I love that guy that character wasn't a charming character yep different thing anyway wade uh, let's talk about a film that sucks okay now it's uh, it it really uh pains us to talk about a bill murray film that sucks but yet here we are with uh, rock the casbah this thing is just you know it's just all barry levinson man it's like i'm glad that barry levinson got a real movie to direct it's you know bruce willis and it's uh bill murray and it's zoe deschanel it's kate hudson it's got a great cast danny mcbride's in it too um but it's all on bill murray and he plays a rock manager from by the way van nuys he plays a rock manager from van nuys wade i know where where are you sitting right now um basically adjacent to van nuys that's true (laughs) that's true the town next to van nuys that's where we're sitting right now Anyway, uh, he winds up in uh, in uh, uh, in Afghanistan, and um, uh, he's a manager. who winds up managing this 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 Afghani kid. Anyway, so um, the problem with this film is that the one liners are not funny. It really needed a smarter script. Uh, I just think that Bill Murray is just sort of walking around waiting for the next one liner to say. I don't know what uh, really attracted Levinson to this material, other than possibly working with Bill Murray. I guess, but his charm isn't there. The script is totally cliched, and uh, it just—I just feel that if if you're going to set a film in Afghanistan with you know Pashtun teenagers and whatnot, there's a certain responsibility to sort of take that at least that bit of it seriously. And I just feel like this that the, that the film is just almost like a misguided subject for a comedy. And so, uh, yeah, Tommy was off. Not funny. Go ahead and rewatch Stripes. All right, so we got a bunch of uh, little DVDs here, uh, all of them um, uh, kind of below the radar, but worth checking out. A couple of them are gay-themed from Wolf, uh, and, uh, you know, they, they have that, I hate to call it crossover, but, you know, worth, worth checking out because they're really, really well done. Uh, the first one is Naz and Malik, which is uh, about a couple of, uh, couple of you know, two uh, teenagers. They're, you know, gay men, they're lovers, they're business partners. And uh, they uh, they're also Muslim, and this gets into um, the all of the unusual and unfortunate and difficult tensions that all of those things arouse when they kind of fall onto the uh, the uh, radar of the authorities. Um, it's uh, it, it it's a little bit on the nose as far as you know c- current events and what's going on, and it's a, but it's not really all that preachy. It just um, it's got some great New York backdrops and some really, really good lead performances. So that's a, that's a nice little surprising uh, gem. And then also from Wolf is a portrait of a serial monogamist, which is about a woman who breaks up with her girlfriend and all of the sort of Woody Allen-esque um, things that ensue in her life, disapproval from her family and all of the various struggles. A low-budget film with some really, really good, um, uh, good performances. Uh, actresses that I've never even heard of: uh, Diane Flax, Carolyn Taylor, Vanessa Dunn. Uh, in, you know, written and directed by a man and a woman. And I thought that's an interesting. Uh, you know, you, you definitely get some interesting perspectives there. A brilliant young mind, starring uh, is it Asa Butterfield? Asa Butterfield. Asa. Asa. Thank you. Well, Asa Butterfield, with those piercing, cold, steely blue eyes, uh, is uh, basically a math prodigy, and uh, it's all about how he, you know, it's not, it's another one of those, I'm a prodigy and I'm disconnected from the world and having a really hard time uh, integrating into reality movies. Um, but he, uh, he, you know, it really, it, he, some, he's a good young actor, man. It's just something about him, and it all kind of builds up to this, you know, math Olympiad moment it reminded me a little bit of uh little man tate the the uh, oh, i love that movie the yeah. jody foster film yeah it's not that good but it's it's kind of in the ballpark and it's got some great supporting performances you know who can do absolutely no wrong whatsoever um is sally hawkins she's just the best i know she's, she's uh, just she shows up and like every movie is better just because she's in it she's true. amazing she's oscar nominee wonderful. yeah 
Right, she's so, an Oscar nominee. She, she is was. an Oscar nominee. And uh, the what what I thought was really interesting for people who are just big nerds, Eddie Marson is in this film as well. And I like him look, too. If you're looking at it and you're like, mm, Sally Hawkins, Eddie Marson, it's a happy-go-lucky reunion, Yay. Mike Lee. So they were both great in that. And uh, then Second Coming, Idris Elba and Nadine Marshall. Uh, this is kind of a minor film directed by Debbie Tucker Green. Uh, really only significant because he's just great in everything that he does, and he's becoming the man of the moment. He just won two freaking SAG Awards, dude. Two SAG Awards. Which, by the way, we didn't talk about this, but um, how, how, how funny was it that the SAG Awards clearly decided to uh, sort of address the whole Oscar thing by basically giving every single nominated black actor an award? Well, here's the thing, too. And deservedly, it? but I mean, I, thought, I just thought that was funny. I was like, my goodness, you know, really lay it on thick. Well, the thing, too, is that, you know, obviously the, the SAG Awards have twice as many acting, not acting awards to give out than the Oscars because yeah. they do TV also. Yeah. You know, and then here's what, I, what somebody needs to do, which no one ever does. They need to line up the, the voting deadlines with the awards because, you know, did the SAG, did the, did the SAG voting deadline – was that late enough where they could react to the Oscar diversity situation, true. or was it just a coincidence? They got to line that up. Yeah, true. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, I'd have to look into those deadlines and figure that out. Because maybe it's just a coincidence. Yeah. Or maybe they're reacting. I just I'm not sure when the deadline for the SAGs to submit their awards ballots yeah. were. And when the Oscar nominations were. Well, anyway, uh, Second Coming is basically about a couple who uh, they've, their relationship has been waning a little bit. And then she suddenly becomes pregnant. And his question is, whose baby is it? And she says, I swear, it's, it's, it's got to be yours. And uh, so it, it's, a, it's about a, you know, it's sort of about a, a, how, how a pregnancy affects a relationship when there's a question with respect to the, the parenthood. But uh, I, I thought the acting was really, really good. It's very small, very contained, but it's a, it's a nice uh, release of a very cool little low-budget British film from uh, Film Movement. And uh, Idris Elba just continues to do amazing work. Even if it's a film that doesn't even make it into theaters, he does a great job. And uh, then lastly, Badge of Honor, which is just another one of these uh, generic straight-to-video cop movies uh, with people who just clearly this is where their careers are now. Martin Sheen shows up in this. Mina Suvari, and this is what they do now, and I wish they were doing better work, but, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty standard. Uh, you know, Mina Suvari plays a, an internal affairs detective and, you know, fill in the blanks. It's I, like I, a, I cannot see her playing an internal affairs. Y- 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 you know what? If you watch the movie, you can. And, uh, no, she was, she, was, she was the girl <laughs> in the bathtub. That's all I, I know. American it's, Beauty. Yeah, in, in the, yeah, it's not. It was a bathtub full of roses. That's all I know. Anyway, it's uh, it's just kind of a it's a standard you know cop procedural thing. It's not really that great, but uh, I do I I was amused by the fact that the guy who wrote and directed it is trying to do the uh, the McGee thing and just be somebody who's so cool that we know him by just one name, Augustine. Augustine? That's not gonna really. Are you gonna be like a film by Augustine? Are you like Almodovar now? What? Who's Augustine? Wait, is that like, his na- is that how he's built? That's how he's built. Augustine, directed by. Augustine. Lame. I don't. I don't need a last name. I'm Augustine. Well, it's like uh, what's his name? Uh, McGee. Yeah. Whatever. Okay. What, whatever on Big Stone Gap. Now, Big Stone Gap is one of those uh, movies that uh, really should be on Lifetime. In fact, maybe it was on Lifetime. I don't know. But uh, it stars Ashley Judd and Patrick Wilson, Whoopi Goldberg, Jane Krakowski, mm-hmm. Anthony LaPaglia, and Jenna Elfman. Basically, a bunch of like you know '90s sitcom people and people who've been like tossed away by the A-list. Um, anyway, Ashley Judd plays this woman. She's turning 40, and she's uh, given up hoping that, uh, that the dude who sees her as a friend will, will get romantic with her. And then it turns out there's a family secret, which I will not um, give away, that uh, turns her life upside down in this small little town called Big Stone Gap. This thing is just creaky and cliched and kind of uh, ridiculous. And uh, I got to say, uh, I, I don't know how they wind up getting this, uh, this cast together. Um, but it was directed by a woman, which, of course, is always a good thing. But uh, anyway, so uh, I would pass on Big Stone uh, Gap about a small town. Uh, it's got a nice small town feel to it, I guess. They, they obviously shot it in a small town, so it does not have a back lot feel, which, of course, is always nice. But anyway, it's uh, really mediocre, very flat, not that funny. Don't quite get it. Um, also, we have Freaks of Nature. Freaks of Nature, uh, the problem with Freaks of Nature is that it wants to look. I mean, look. Wade, when you when you look at this uh, uh, cover art, <laughs> yes, what does this remind you of? It's one of those like '80s yeah. uh, low budget uh, the, 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 slasher the, the, film things. Yeah, yeah, 
The issue with the Freaks of Nature is that it tries to be too many things at once. It tries to be an alien invasion movie. It wants to be a zombie movie. There's some vampires in there, too. Some high school drama. Can't beat that. And it really winds up just being too much. It tries to be funny, tries to be scary. Kitchen sink, can't do it all. Uh, it does have a decent uh, cast. Uh, Dennis Leary's in this. Vanessa Hudgens is in this for some reason. Uh, Joan Cusack, Bob Odenkirk, Patton Oswalt's in it. So it's got a good cast, and that's kind of what carries you through. Um, Jonah Hill was an executive producer on this. I'm not quite sure why. But, uh, yeah. So this thing, it's got the really cheesy synth-pop score and the soft-focused lighting. And, you know, it just seems like a... It's almost like um, like a John Hughes film mm-hmm. with vampires and zombies. Yeah. Right. So it has uh, it, it it has designs on being like this cool yeah. little funny thing, but in the end, it just it just can't pull it off. Pride and Prejudice and the zombies. Everyone hates it. Uh, and Spike Lee's uh, latest Spike Lee joint, Chirac, which if they had bothered to actually screen this for for press organizations in time and push it for awards, I think it might have done well. And it could have gotten even a couple of Oscar nominations and, and uh, quelled the whole quote-unquote diversity issue. I mean, this but is the best they of... They did nothing with it. They, they didn't... Lionsgate just sort of let this lay there. And Amazon Studios, I, I guess, bears a little bit of the blame, too, because, you know, they're, they're behind it financially. But nobody really pushed this. I don't think that people... You know what? Ever since Spike Lee went into his whole, I'm just going to have my, my film students crew my movies, yeah. and they'll all cost $5, I, yeah. don't think, I don't think the industry cares, like, much about him. I think they feel like well, he's fallen it, off the radar. It's and, too bad bad because this is his best film in decades i mean it really is his best of his original not his for higher gigs but his joints you know his original rants and raves i mean it's kind of a little bit it's sort of back into it's like if he if he did a fusion between um uh school days which has that whole musical component right and uh do the right thing it kind of gets into the same it, it gets gets into the same crevices it's got the same energy it's really well done it's got a fantastic cast uh, Jennifer Hudson, Angela Bassett, uh, Sam Jackson, you know, obviously Wesley Snipes, John Cusack even shows up. Uh, it's, uh, you know, and, and basically, as everybody probably knows by now, he does an urban adaptation, like an urban uh, kind of hip hoppy adaptation of the uh, ancient Greek play Lysistrata, which makes a whole lot of sense because he's addressing the issue of violence in the inner city and guns and, uh, you know, the, the power that women have that they don't necessarily exercise. Uh, it, it all takes place in Chicago's South Side. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to say this too. Yeah. The title. Chirac? First of all, yeah. nobody knew whether, whether it was Chirac, Chirac, Chirac. Well, it's like Chicago, Iraq. Okay, you should Chirac. not have to explain the title. And also, yeah. even if he figured it out, I think people go, oh, Spike, what's he going to do now? He's going <laughs> to hate Whitey. I got to sit there for two hours while he hates Whitey. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't, it didn't seem like a movie that was that uh, I, the average 65 year old Academy voter yeah. was going to go run to. That's true. But you know what? Uh, they should have pushed it anyway. Anyway. Uh, it's got, you know, very few uh, extras here, d- extended scenes, deleted scenes, featurettes. That's all it's got, music video. Uh, but it's worth checking out. It really is one of the uh, one of the unsung films of last year. I agree. All right, Mark, uh, we got television, we got foreign. What are we going to dive into? Blow through TV? <laughs> Why not? Right? <laughs> sure. Sure, blow through TV. Okay. Um, so the unauthorized Full House story. Uh, is absolutely ridiculous. This is a bunch of people who look like the guys on Full House doing really bad impressions of everybody on Full House. And uh, it, this, this is just, I don't even know why this story needed to be told. Uh, I guess maybe because... You know what? Because uh, the, the the network that aired that, yeah. that's what they do. I know. They, they, they did a 902101. Here's the Full House one. Yeah, it it's it. really cheesy. Well, it's a lifetime thing. And it was, uh, it's made by, it's, it's Canadian produced. I mean, I, you know, whatever. It's very strange. Um, let me just go through a few of these uh, here real quickly that are not that important. Uh, as long as we're on Lifetime, we've got Unreal Season 1. Uh, I'm kind of still amazed that Lifetime has original series, but, uh, you know, this is... Uh, you know, people love that show. Unreal? They people love the Yep, i got to say, I've not seen it, so well, people no, love it. Don't know why. It's like it's like a, it's basically set around this dating competition show. It's kind of like a reality show that's not a reality Here's show. Here's the reason why, because it was, it was produced by people who used to work on those shows. Yeah. So they feel like they're actually getting what it really is like to be on those shows. It really Every pulls the curtain back. Every single character is totally forgettable, but I, you know, I get it. I, it's... It's got that behind-the-scenes kind no, of but deal. No, you're right. The thing is that people don't love it in the way they love The Bachelor. They love it because they feel like here's the way these, these shows actually work because they're produced by guys who used to do those shows. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, then there's also Swamp People, season six. Uh, that was produced by actual Swamp People. Uh, yeah, well, as long as we're on reality show subjects. Uh, this is just more like, oh, you know what? They did, did really well with Duck Dynasty, uh, shining the light on some hillbillies who make d- millions with duck call stuff. And they do all those dirty jobs shows are really good. Why don't we just go and find guys who, uh, who like, fight alligators and... Uh, we're sort of like real life hillbillies with you know, they like they, they wrestle alligators and they shoot them and they're on boats and they're swamp people. Let's make a show about swamp people and that's what it is. And it's it, it I, you know I don't know who you are that you watch this, but seriously, after about fifteen seconds of this, I felt my brain shrinking, and I had to turn it off. I can't can't handle it. Did your brain uh, did your brain uh, start to restretch after you stopped watching it? It did actually. Wow. While I was watching it, I felt like I wanted. Uh, uh, to shove, yes. a burrito, shove a burrito in my nostrils. When I was done, I was actually perceiving gravitational waves from colliding black holes. Wow. That's how, that's how dramatically the show impacted my Unbelievable. intellect. Unbelievable. And then the last one I'm going to make a quick mention of here is, uh, is absolutely fantastic. If you have not been watching this, you've got to. Uh, the uh, HBO miniseries uh, Show Me a Hero with Oscar Isaac is tremendous. It's really tremendous. Uh, this is... Um, it, it, just further proof that Oscar Isaac is the real deal, man. He's just unbelievably great. Um, Paul Haggis directed this. Best thing he's done since Crash as a director. Oh, and, which is to say the only thing he's done as a director. It, it, I don't like Crash, and you love Crash. I love Crash. But, uh, no, I mean, he's done a few other things, a couple other things since, which I didn't much care for. But he directs the hell out of this. It is really, really great. Well, when I mean only thing, I mean the only thing of note. Yes, and uh, this is basically about a, this. It, it, it is a it is a fascinating political um, miniseries that uh, deals specifically with a a a mayor, a small town mayor with a certain political history, who is uh, supposed to. He's a court order demands that he build uh, low income housing, and um, it is how that ripples through the whole political infrastructure of this town and all of the tentacles that sort of connect it to all of these other uh, all these other issues uh, it's really impressive now this this comes to us from the wire producer david simon um even though he did not write it it's sort of his his you know he co-wrote it he co-conceived the story but it's not his actual screenplay but it's uh it it's got that same kind of hard-hitting toughness that the wire had and I, you know what oscar isaac man he's the real deal he is and you know Such what the uh, real deal. and and i i'm hoping and i know that being in Star Wars Force Awakens will not just turn him into like you know no, the latest no. super blockbuster actor guy who can't do he's, small films. He's going to do. He's going to use that to do small films. That's going to pay the boat payments, right? That's going to take care of. Uh, That's right. Yeah, that'll, the Star Wars films will pay for all that other stuff, and he's going. He's just going to keep going until he wins an Oscar or two. That is the hope. Yep. Anyway, Wade, uh, we got a couple TV things uh, from the Ask Your Parents department. We have Mikhail's Navy, the complete series. Now, Mikhail's <laughs> Navy. Was a show that uh, it, it it was the thing. It was from 1962 to 1966. I watched this, I watched this all the time when I was a kid. I loved Mikhail's name. Now, luckily, they did not come out with uh, individual season sets that broken up into five different DVD releases. They put the whole thing in this uh, in this cute beautiful shop factory box. That's right, twenty one discs, all four seasons. It was a pretty big show at the time. It starred Ernest Borgnine and Tim Conway. It was set in the Pacific Theater, World War Two. It was uh, you know the crazy wacky crew of the of the PT boat that they yeah. were on and uh you know it was based on I, they actually made a, a Mikhail's Navy film like mm-hmm. 20 years ago that starred Tom Arnold yes so they tried to they tried to reboot it as a comedy film yeah. with Tom Arnold and Tim Curry yeah it didn't work i know it's uh, also the, the, to me even though uh i love Tim Conway and i love uh, Ernest Borgnine there were a lot of funny guys on that on that show too. It wasn't just them. I loved all the military comedies that that, that I grew up on. I mean, McHale's Navy, Gomer Pyle, which was a spinoff of the Andy Griffith Show. Sharky, uh, CBO Sharky. Well, that, that was the. 80s. Tell me you didn't like CBO Sharky. Yeah, but but uh, also. Oh, you mean the uh, the earlier ones? The earlier ones, the '60s ones. You know, this whole this era and and Hogan's Heroes. I mean, you know, like mil- war and military comedies. Where has that gone? We're mash. You know why? Because because nobody. Because you know what? The military has become too toxic. I mean, we're we're it's all sorts of wars where, in the Middle East that are destroying everything. Where is my Iraq War sitcom? That's what I want to know. Still, where is my Iraq War sitcom? No, this is beautiful. This is fantastic. You know why we can't do that? Well, here's the thing. There's plenty of reasons why. But also, you know, we cannot. I don't know that any network would take a chance on that. 
I'm not sure who the showrunner is who can approach that material with the sensitivity and humor that, let's say, MASH did. Well, I also want to make mention, this has uh, the two feature films from 1964 and 65 that they also did with McHale's Navy. So it's not just the uh, the show. You get the crew reunion, and you get the uh, you also get those two movies, uh, uh, which is um, uh, PT-73, McHale's Navy, and McHale's Navy Joins the Air Force, which is a, a title that's far funnier than the movie. But, uh, yeah, you get, the, you get the whole... And, you know, when Ernest Borgnine uh, did not want to make a sequel to those movies, they decided to one-up him, and they cast Ernest Borg 10. Yes? Hello? Okay, fine. Uh, you know, uh, British TV is just killing it, and uh, this is the last season of Downton Abbey, Downton Abbey 6... Season 6, Series 6, is out on Blu-ray and DVD, and uh, we are working our way through it steadily because my daughter has to watch every single episode. It's the only grown-up uh, stuff that she watches, and it teaches her how to pronounce words. And With an accent. Uh, with an accent. She does. I kid you not. Because of Peppa Pig and you know Ben and Holly and Peg plus Cat and Wallace and Gromit. She's going to wind up She's gonna wind up like, like Gore Vidal or some Kennedy <laughs> who's got like some blue blood, <laughs> New England, you know, a feet uh, did, the, the pediatrician, accent. The pediatrician even said, like six months ago, does she have? She has like a British accent. And we're like, did yep, not. She did. I'm not kidding you. I am not kidding that you. Poor kid. That that kid's gonna rebel against you so heavy. Anyway, I'm saying tattoos. This is a good season. Keep her off the pole, away. Just keep her off the pole. That's all that matters. <laughs> this is a really good season, and I'm dying to see how it how it wraps out. But so far, this is just it's just class from from top to bottom. Uh, it's winding up a, one of my all time favorite TV series in a beautiful way. And uh, I, so I didn't, you know, entirely uh, spoil anything. I, I kind of glimpsed a little bit at some of the, uh, the some of the feature the featurette stuff, which is also lovely. Uh, the quality of the show is just, you know, beyond excellent. They've improved the cinematography over the years. They clearly are, you know, have more of a budget. And uh, it, you get the Blu-ray. It's just great. And then what, uh, is, speaking of the British connection, this is British only in the sense that it is produced by Ridley Scott, but this is the one they're trying to turn into the new Downton Abbey. It comes on after Downton Abbey on PBS now. And uh, this is also from PBS on Blu-ray, the six-part Civil War drama Mercy Street, which uh, I have a feeling is probably going to not just be a six-parter, but they're going to keep this going because it's great. It's really great. So uh, they're going to probably do like Downton Abbey and turn it from a miniseries into a regular series and see how many years they can uh, keep it going. But uh, Mercy Street is fantastic. It takes place in 1862 and uh, is essentially a um, – um, it's about a hotel that's been turned into a hospital during the Civil War. And it uses the hospital as sort of ground zero for all of these, you know, soapy relationships and issues. But uh, I'll tell you, I mean, I, something like this could very easily have been um, overly preachy and really, really just get on my nerves with all of its sort of, you know, uh, project all of this modern day civil rights speechifying. But it doesn't. It really lets you sort of wallow in the difficulties and in the moral quandaries of the era. And uh, it's great. It's really, it's very, very sharp. And uh, some... Great bonus uh, stuff on here, deleted scenes, and uh, how they actually address the historical accuracy of it, which is absolutely meticulous. It's really uh, very, very sharp. So bravo to Ridley Scott for getting behind this and uh, and pushing it. This is going to be this is this is like the next big deal. Watch this thing r- start racking up Emmys. Seriously, it's great. You know what also what also is great the wild thornberries. Yeah. No, I I, I don't. I'm just telling you about this show. I have not seen the show because I don't have kids. Although I've been a kid. Anyway, Shout Factory, uh, Slam Dunks, uh, 91 episodes of the Throneberries. These are on DVD, by the way. This is really just sort of like a repackagey thing. Uh, Anyway, it's all about uh, the girl, Eliza, I think her name is, and they have a documentary family, and they go off and record animals and whatnot. Uh, People love this show. Uh, Even looking at the uh, cover art, I always found um, that the uh, character designs were a little creepy. Freaky. They mm-hmm. definitely were, but people loved it. So I'm letting you know that Nickelodeon has released the Wild Thornberries, uh, the complete series on a DVD. Uh, by the way, I was going to make mention of this earlier with Swamp People, uh, so I'm going to uh, do my catch-up. I uh, forgot that I was going to mention this. Um, uh, Mountain Men uh, from the History Channel. It's more of the same deal. It goes along with Swamp People. These are it's just, you know, let's find somebody who's a little bit crazy and uh, in inclement conditions 
and like dirty jobs and uh, the one about the trucker, ice truckers. It's it's more of that kind of stuff. Let's just find you know people who just are really eccentric. Anyway, this is uh, you know this is just basically old dudes and kind of middle aged dudes who still live the frontier way and. Uh, you know, I guess if if this is your thing, it's just it's not that interesting to be honest. But uh, anyway, Mountain Men from the History Channel. It's uh, you know six episodes of old dudes being mountain men. Uh, wait, there is a um, in the ten thousand channel universe. There is a network that is uh, uh, mainly targeting Latinos called the El Rey Network. Now, the El Rey Network was launched by Robert Rodriguez. And uh, it's available on some cable. Uh, no, I don't think it's. Uh, you know, actually, I think it is on Comcast. Anyway, um, the LA Network, targeting Latinos, definitely has like a cool, funky, grindhouse type of style, in and out, uh, through and through. And so since Robert Rodriguez launched this thing, I guess it makes a lot of sense that one of their original series would be from Dust Till Dawn. Uh, so this is a uh, series version of the Rodriguez film, Dust Till Dawn, that uh, back in the day starred uh, George Clooney and all sorts of fun people, which a uh, film I liked. Now... Um, this new show has uh, new characters uh, who uh, do a lot of shooting and look really grim. And I have to say, this uh, the show is okay. It could definitely use like a pump up in budget because then you'd get sh- uh, episodes that maybe are shot better, have cooler action, whatnot, maybe more coverage that they can cut more um, and kind of create cooler action scenes. But uh, still, it's actually not that bad. You know, it's got uh, uh, Wilmer Valderrama and Robert Patrick is in it. Don Johnson shows up. Jake Busey shows up in this thing. Esai Morales. So there's definitely some cool uh, people involved in the show, but uh, I think that the show really is one of those. You know what? If if, th- if this was on Fox or if this yeah. was on a major right. network, they would it would be it would be a million dollars an episode, and they can really crank it up. But here it's like it feels meh. You know what it is? It just it's it's the sort of show that gets a little tiny cable network a little bit of attention, right? Because it's already everyone knows from Dust Till Dawn. And otherwise, the LRA Network. This is really the only show the LRA Network does mm-hmm. that is known by the outside world. Yep. Uh, and then we have uh, some classic TV here, real quickly. Uh, the Man from Uncle, the complete season two, the original Man from Uncle, still way better than that recent film, which is just horrible. Man from Uncle movie. It's just the more I think about it, the more it's just, gosh, it really annoys me. Uh, but anyway, uh, there is, you know what, Robert Vaughn is the only Napoleon solo. He really is. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a Cold War TV spy thing. It's right in there with the Avengers and, uh, and all the rest of them. A lot of fun. So that's season two. And uh, then we also have uh, fans of Facts of Life season eight are in for a treat because boy George Clooney looks ridiculous in this episode this uh, this uh, season he just he wears that eighties hair like nobody's business and uh, wow uh, I saw this show I, this is how far back I go I saw this show as as a member of the studio audience I still remember that it is like yesterday and. Uh, Boy, there is some weird stuff in season eight. This sh- this is this is jumping the shark like nobody's business. And George Clooney plays the shark. Uh, anyway, there's uh, there's there's just some really really strange uh, over the top stuff here. But anyway, uh, so yeah, you get George Clooney, Stacy Q even shows up. If you don't know who Stacy Q is, then you are obviously too young to have any appreciation for this. But I was I was big on Stacy Q too. You remember Stacy Q? No. Two of hearts. Oh, that song? That song. I hated that song. (laughs) You remember Stacey Q. Or was it three of of hearts? That's the one. Two hearts that beat as That's it. There you go. That was her? That was Stacey Q. She's probably like 65 years old, old, (laughs) wrinkly, and old and dead. Do a Google search on Stacey Q. I will not be doing that. The only reason any of us liked her was because she looked, not how she sang. Uh, Teenage Boys. Anyway, Sisters, uh, season three. This show was, I've mentioned this before, this show never had like a regular time slot. It was always, and then after the Super Bowl, Sisters, or after Monday Night Football, Sisters. It just, it came on after football games at the weirdest times, and then it would go off for the middle of the season to come on again during the summer. It was just could never sort of get its uh, get its groove going, but it was still a good show uh, and a and really terrific uh, cast. Julianne Phillips, who of course was once married to Bruce Springsteen, along with Celia Ward, who can do no wrong. Uh, Swoozie Kurtz, who's always been wonderful, and then Patricia Kalember, who I don't know where she went, but anyway. Uh, so that is season three of Sisters. 
slowly getting that one back out. The Saint, uh, ever since they uh, went from A&E to Timeless Media Group, they're really re-releasing these things steadily. This is seasons three and four. Uh, still a great show, as long as we're on the Man from Uncle stuff. This is, of course, the show that got Roger Moore uh, cast as James Bond, and he plays uh, Simon Templer, uh, the, you know, the, the, the sort of mysterious, um, he's not a spy, but he just gets from one intriguing situation into another. Uh, really a fantastic figure created by Leslie Charteris as far back as ni- in the 1920s, late 1920s, and uh, really became a fixture of the 1960s and 70s thanks to Roger Moore and later uh, other actors who took over the role after him, uh, including Ian Ogilvy, who uh, wasn't so bad. I once thought Ian Ogilvy, when he replaced him as the saint, I thought Ian Ogilvy would eventually wind up playing James Bond for the same reasons, but never quite took off. Anyway, you got your mind. Uh, seasons three and four, 32 episodes. And then uh, lastly, Hee Haw, we've talked about in the last. This is Cornfield Classics with a K, Cornfield and Classics, both with a K. Uh, this is just a, you know some, some, some highlights from Hee Haw. If you're a Hee Haw fan and you don't want to actually have to buy the whole set or anything significant, this is, you know, this will kind of keep you yucking for a little while. It was, you know, it's, a, it's a hillbilly version of Laugh-In. And uh, similarly, the Carol Burnett Show, Treasures from the Vault, Collector's Edition, for people who don't want to have to buy any of the, the, the complete series. Uh, this is just six DVDs that feature 15 uh, episodes that are all really, really good, and a lot of classic sketches, the old folks and uh, the uh, you know their parody of Valley of the Dollars. And, I mean, there's some really fun stuff here. So uh, this is you know strictly for people that just want to kind of have a little bit of Carol Burnett to enjoy, but they're not completists. Love that show. He's the best. Yep. Mythica, a quest for heroes. It's a couple of these. Uh, we have a quest for heroes. We have uh, the Dark Spore. Now... Quest for Heroes was uh, partly funded on Kickstarter, collected about $100,000. And if you want to see what $100,000 gets you, uh, check out Mythica Quest for Heroes. This thing is, is it's just ridiculous. It stars uh, Kevin Sorbo and uh, Melanie Stone. I don't know who she is, but what's funny is that if you so, see in the uh, – wait, obviously you can't see this, folks. No. But uh, if you look at the Quest for Heroes, if you see how ample Melanie Stone is. Oh, she's ample. In the Quest for Heroes mm-hmm. uh, uh, DVD bo- yeah. uh, DVD set. And yet if you look at the how ample she's become, she's had breast reduction for the uh, <laughs> DVD cover of The Dark Spore. Now, I'm not sure whether – right? Now, is that because they want it? Now, here's the thing. Uh, if, because they're putting her front and center, maybe they thought – this the show is not uh, attracting enough women, so if they sexualize her too much, it's a turnoff to women. So for the dark spore, they will uh, give her a bit of a uh, yeah, put well, her front them, center. One of them also amplifies Kevin Sorbo. I don't know. It's, it's, it's I'm telling that this is not a coincidence. Look yeah. at that. That's like full on like you know heavy metal. You know, like heavy metal era '70s animation, right there. This is Game of Thrones for people who, uh, for whom, for whom people Game of Thrones is uh, a little bit too intense and too sexual, too and good. violent. Yeah, too yeah. good. Yeah, <laughs> it's not not family friendly enough. That's true. Anyway, now we also have season two of The Leftovers. Uh, this show is on HBO, and uh, you know, it's never it's it's an interesting concept, I guess. It's very Stephen Kingish. It's uh, 140 million people suddenly disappear. Two percent of the world's population. Where did they go? And it's how the world, uh, the rest of the world reacts to this uh, sudden departure, as they call it. And uh, the problem with this show is that all you really want to know is what the hell happened. That's all you want. You know, <laughs> just tell me what happened. It's aliens. Huh? Same thing with Lost. Just, yeah, I know. You can't, you can't, you, I, I have a problem with shows that basically introduce an itch in the first episode and then sustain themselves by teasing you and refusing to scratch it week after week after week. At a certain point, you have to pay something off. Well, you'd better be so interested in the characters that mm. you don't really care. Yeah. And that's something The Leftovers tries to do in the second season. There's an expanded list, uh, cast of characters in this one. And there is interesting things to say about uh, about religion and spirituality that I think is kind of like a pretty bold for you know for a cable sure. show. Uh, so there's something there. I just think that instead of milking this thing for 17 seasons and just letting it go and go and go, something like this would have been great. As a miniseries. Yeah, I agree. You know, but they just got to keep going and going and going. So uh, Justin Theroux is in this, uh, otherwise known as Mr. Jennifer Aniston, <laughs> and uh, he's good. And then lastly, we've got a trio from the, the Scream Factory line of Shout Factory. Uh, some old nostalgic classics of the horror-ish genre. A couple from uh, the Tales of the Crypt movie line, which was very short-lived. But we've got uh, Bordello of Blood. 
and uh, Demon Knight. Uh, both of them perfectly fine. If you're a fan of, you know, uh, Tales from the Crypt, you, 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 you know, you, you know what it is, basically. It's just taking some sort of B-level actors and putting them into uh, sort of an, an interesting uh, horror, tongue-in-cheek, campy scenario drawn from the, uh, the television Tales from the Crypt. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like Creep. Uh, creep show. It's sort of the same deal. This is kind of you know. It just it's it's scratching it's scratching an itch that those TV shows like The Leftovers don't. You just want to see a little bit of uh, camp and B level actors, and it and it does that. Uh, Ernest Dickerson, who was once Spike Lee's cinematographer and then went on to become a very good director in his own, uh, does a good job with Demon Knight, and then uh, Gilbert Adler directs the uh, the other one, Bordello of Blood, which was sort of the end of the uh, the line. The only thing that's really interesting here is that Corey Feldman and Dennis Miller are together in Bordello of Blood, and I think that is a great trivia question. What movie co-stars Corey Feldman and uh, Dennis Miller? That's a great Six Degrees uh, shortcut. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Because, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll play Six Degrees with somebody. Put that one in the back of the uh, the noodle. And then the last one is a collector's edition of the Garbage Pail Kids movie. Oh, my gosh. Do you remember this? Oh, the Garbage Pail Kids. (laughs) Do you remember this? Look it up, kids. It's it's pretty weird. It's creepy, freaky, funny, Garbage Pail Kids. Gosh, it was just the fact that Now, the Garbage Pail Kids. They were toys. Was a reaction to the Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes. The Cabbage Patch Kids were nice and fluffy, and uh, the kids loved it. But luckily, there are some adults evil enough to say, let's do the Garbage Pail Kids instead. And this is late 80s. Uh, so it took, you know, very Cabbage Patch Kids just drew this horrendous reaction from some people who are just like, okay, you know, I'm sick of this trend. These things are selling out for no reason whatsoever. It's like a pet rock. It was ridiculous. And they came up with the Garbage Pail Kids, and then somebody took the added step of saying, let's have a Garbage Pail Kids movie. And the, the makeup is ridiculous. Uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> the plot is so stupid. Um, it's, it's just like the, the, the bodily fluids that flow in this thing. It's just it's awesome. It's so, it's so ridiculous. It's so off the hinge. It's just so off the hinge. I, I don't even know how to do it. Well, anyway, the, the idea is that these kids live in a magical trash can and they're released from it. And just it, from there, it just becomes, you know, it's ridiculous. It's, it's insane. It's a completely bizarre movie. But anyway, it, it's a cult film from the late 80s, and uh, it definitely goes in. Wouldn't you say you, you put this in there with, like, Troll? Doesn't it kind of belong yeah. to the same... Well, they are trolls, really. They're they, evil But trolls. it belongs to the same kind of film, the same era as Troll. And what was the... Uh, Critters? Was Critters? Critters? The, Critters. They're, they're, Critters. See, they're all kind of in the same vein, that era of sort of... But cheap. also toys. Like, there's like they're... they're uh, when we were that age, we would play yeah. with toys of that size. Yeah. There were small little trolls and dolls and critters. And there's whatever. no CGI in these things. This is all pre. This is where we actually did like latex makeup and weird little animatronic things. I know, but some of that stuff really sucked. I mean, you know, really, like Chucky the doll. Like Chucky yeah. the doll is the only one where its fakeness is justified because he is a doll. Yes. All right. Well, that's it for this week. We are uh, we're out. We will see you back next week, and then the week after that, it's Oscars. What? Yeah after that so all right everybody uh we will see you soon